When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Harry, Steve, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad. Yes, we've come to Dick the Bad, King Richard the Third. And the willy, willy, Harry, Steve rhyme is pretty unequivocal in its view of him. And history has indeed remembered him as Dick the Bad. Although in recent years there have been moves to re-evaluate him, driven particularly by a group who call themselves the Ricardians, who want to unsully his reputation, claiming that he was unfairly maligned by Tudor historians for propaganda purposes to support the cause of the man who deposed him, Henry Tudor, Henry VII, and subsequent Tudors, such as Henry's son, Henry VIII. Well, maybe at the end of this episode you could make up your own mind. Was he Dick the Bad or was he the victim of propaganda smears? Now, Richard has already appeared in the podcast. He started out as the unassuming younger brother of Edward IV. Uh, When the Wars of the Roses started, he was too young to, to be involved at all. And he didn't seem to be that central to the story, certainly to begin with. But we've seen how he slowly moved centre stage. And in the previous episode about Edward V, he finally made his move, striking fast and hard like a rattlesnake. And that made quite an impact. He announced that his nephew, Edward V, was illegitimate and therefore not entitled to rule, and he stole the crown from him. Now, we'll come on to that in a minute, as we need to start at the beginning of Richard's life. He was born in 1452, And he died in 1485. He was only 33 when he died. 
In productions of the Shakespeare play, he's often uh, played by a much older actor and we can lose sight of just how young he was when he took the throne. And he only actually reigned for about two and a half years. After Lady Jane Grey and Edward V, this was the third shortest reign of any English monarch. And yet he managed to really make his mark on history. How much of that is down to Shakespeare? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the more successful and popular Shakespeare plays mean that the subjects of those plays stay in our popular consciousness. Richard was the last of the House of York, and he also had the dubious honour of being the last Plantagenet king. This line that had started right back with Henry II, the son of Geoffrey of Anjou. And for over 300 years, the Plantagenets, or the Angevins, as they were actually probably more commonly known at the time, had held the throne. But as I say, it's Richard who finally loses it to Henry Tudor. And the next episode will launch the Tudor dynasty. The Battle of Bosworth Field, when Richard was killed, is often seen as the end of the Middle Ages in England, as we move from the medieval into the Tudor era. So Richard was a really important king and played a a pivotal role in English history, even though his actual reign was so short. His father was another Richard, Richard, Duke of York, who had fought so hard to take the throne from his close relative, Henry VI. And after Richard of York was killed in 1460 at the Battle of Wakefield, the fight was taken up by his son, Edward, who was Richard III's big brother. Richard's mother was Cecily Neville. Now, the Nevilles, as I'm sure you'll remember, because we've talked about them a lot before, were this powerful northern family, the Lords of the North, who held the Scottish marches as a bulwark to deter the Scots from invading England. And back in 1396, a guy called Ralph Neville married into the royal family. He got himself hitched to one of the daughters of John of Gaunt from his second marriage, Joan Beaufort on the Lancastrian side of the family. And they have about 10 children. And now don't worry, I won't go into them all here. But one of them is their daughter, Cecily, who, as I say, married Richard of York. And they had 12 children. Among them, Edward IV, Flaky George, the Duke of Clarence, and our current subject, Richard of Gloucester, who becomes King Richard III. Now, If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to briefly jump back to Ralph Neville and Joan Beaufort. As I said, they had 10 children, including Cecily, and a son called, yep, he's another Richard. Now, this is Richard Neville, the fifth Earl of Salisbury, who was the father of Warwick the Kingmaker, which makes Warwick the Kingmaker the first cousin of both Edward IV and Richard III. I wish I could draw a diagram for you here, but um, I hope you can just tell that there's this complicated mare's nest of marriage and intermingling. And it doesn't stop there. Oh, no, no, no. It just gets more tangled as Warwick the Kingmaker carries on with this tactic of trying to make political marriages for his kids. But we'll come on to that in a minute. Now, if you didn't follow all that, don't worry. All you really need to know is that our featured monarch, Richard of Gloucester, was the 11th of the 12 children of Richard of York and Cecily Neville. 
And when the Wars of the Roses kicked off, he was still a child. He was only eight when his father and older brother Edmund were killed at the Battle of Wakefield. And young Richard was sent across the Channel for safety in the Low Countries. Then, after the Lancastrians were defeated at the Battle of Towton a year later, Richard returned. And he was there for the coronation of his oldest surviving brother, Edward, in 1461, when he became Edward IV. And it was at this point that young Richard became Duke of Gloucester after first being knighted. And he spent some part of his early years being looked after by Warwick the Kingmaker at his castle in Wensleydale before Warwick and Edward fell out. Warwick helped train Richard as a knight and Edward actually gave substantial sums of money to Warwick for the boy's upbringing. And whilst he was there in Warwick the Kingmaker's household, he would have got to know Warwick's family, including his daughter Anne Neville. Now, while he was still young, Richard developed scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. When his skeleton was discovered under a car park in Leicester in 2012, experts examined the bones and deduced that the curvature wasn't actually that pronounced. One of Richard's shoulders might possibly have been a little higher than the other, uh, but anything else would have been easily hidden under his clothing. So it was nothing particularly dramatic. He was by no means the twisted crookback that he was later personified as, as if um, physical abnormalities somehow automatically make you an evil person, which is absolute nonsense, of course. And certainly nobody seems to have commented on his physique at the time. And he seems to have been a popular and well-adjusted young man. But his life got totally disrupted when his big brother, Edward IV, fell out with their cousin, Warwick the Kingmaker. They both wanted to be in charge and Edward, as the king, considered that he was probably the best man for the job. So Warwick temporarily switched his allegiance to Edward's younger brother, Flaky George, Duke of Clarence, and married one of his daughters, Isabella, to him. Big mistake. George is rubbish. His plans to take over the throne come to nothing. And Warwick has to flee to France, where he, he tried to make this unlikely and frankly bizarre alliance with Margaret of Anjou, his deadliest enemy in the forlorn hope that they might get Henry VI back on the throne and Warwick could be sort of kingmaker again. And at this point, to cement the deal, Warwick married another of his daughters, Anne, Anne Neville, to Margaret and Henry's son, Edward, Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne. And then, with help from the French, Warwick and his new allies go back to England and manage to briefly depose Edward, and put Henry back on the throne, at which point Edward and Richard fled to Burgundy, where there was something of an embarrassment at the Burgundian court, who didn't really know what to do with them. But back home, Warwick the Kingmaker was becoming increasingly unpopular. King Henry VI was a pathetic figure, and everybody knew that Warwick was really the man in charge. So Edward didn't stay long in France. He rallied his forces, returned to England and defeated Warwick's army at the Battle of Barnet, during which Warwick was killed. 
And Edward then goes on to finally defeat the Lancastrians at Tewkesbury, killing young Prince Edward in the process. And Henry VI was murdered soon after. Now that he was a teenager, Richard of Gloucester is now able to be Edward's right-hand man in these battles and proved himself an effective general. He'd become a man. He'd won his spurs. And the death of Prince Edward meant that Anne Neville, Warwick the Kingmaker's daughter, was a widow, and Richard quickly married her. Now, this caused some problems in the family. His older brother, Flaky George, Duke of Clarence, as we saw before, had already married Anne's older sister, Isabel, and was hoping to inherit all of Warwick's estates. Now it looked like he would have to share this inheritance with his younger brother, Richard. So Richard had to sign a prenup, allowing George to take most of the land and titles. But he still had to get permission from the Pope to marry Anne, as the two of them were so closely related. But bad blood persisted between the brothers, and an angry King Edward had to step in and pronounce that everything should be shared equally. And from this point, Edward began to favour Richard over George, and eventually lost all patience with George. George kept scheming against his brother and causing problems. And um, Edward took the bold step of having him executed, which is one way to deal with a brother you don't get on with. And from this point, Edward increasingly gives lands, titles and power to Richard. He made him Lord of Ireland and also effectively Lord of the North, setting him up in York and almost splitting the rule of England into two. The idea was to keep the Northerners happy and stop the Scots from having ideas about invading. There were growing tensions with Scotland through this period uh, and there was a sort of a quasi war with the Scots but they were too disorganised and Edward never fully engaged so it was down to Richard to hold things together and there were some sort of fairly ineffectual military manoeuvring and this new Scottish threat didn't really amount to anything in the end. But then in 1483 King Edward unexpectedly died and Richard became Lord Protector of the Realm. Everybody seems to have been happy with this, um, including, it seems, all of Edward's closest advisers and his chief advisor, Baron Hastings. But now we see Richard turn. We see a new side to his character that, that, that has not been in evidence before. And the question is, did he change? Or had he always been this character, playing the long game? Had he always had half an eye on the throne? And we saw in the previous episode how King Edward IV's son and heir, Prince Edward, now became King Edward V and was brought to London by his mother's relatives, including his uncle, Earl Rivers. And Richard intercepted them at Northampton and after whining and dining the men, he had them arrested on trumped-up charges of plotting to take over the throne. Richard cleverly accused them of doing exactly what he intended to do. But he kept quiet about it at this point, and everybody was still thinking that he was trying to protect Edward and that there was no self-interest in any of this. 
and he then escorted young King Edward to London and installed him in the Tower of London for his own safekeeping and started planning for Edward's coronation. And sometimes in potted histories, and and perhaps I implied in the last episode, that events then move really quickly and one thing instantly leads to another. Um, It is a little drawn out. It kind of takes a few months. And perhaps at this point, Richard was still planning to have Edward coronated and have this anointing ceremony where he already is King of England. But in the coronation ceremony, when you get anointed, you're anointed by God. You become this divinely appointed figure and become something extra special. And perhaps he was just trying to remove what was a potential threat from um, Elizabeth Woodville's branch of the family, who may have wanted to have a complete power grab and oust anyone who might be a threat to Edward. But one of the things that Richard does is to accuse Hastings and the other remaining supporters of his older brother, King Edward IV, of plotting with the Woodvilles to murder him. Several prominent men were arrested and Hastings was taken to the Tower of London where his head was cut off. Now, we looked at all this in some detail in the previous episode, but I'll repeat it here for those of you who haven't diligently been listening to every episode. So Edward V's mother, Edward IV's widow, Elizabeth Woodville, is taking refuge in Westminster Abbey with her other son, Richard. Her brother has been arrested. Her husband's supporters have been arrested. She does not trust her brother-in-law, Richard of Gloucester. At which point Richard gets a couple of his pet clerics to persuade Elizabeth that everything was fine and that Richard was planning the coronation of Edward V and that he was just being very careful. And she somewhat reluctantly allowed her other son, Edward's younger brother Richard, to join him in the tower so that they could prepare for the coronation ceremony together. But she was right not to trust Richard of Gloucester because he eventually executed her brother and then produced a legal document claiming that Edward's marriage to Elizabeth was unlawful as he'd been betrothed to someone else, thus making her two boys illegitimate. And as they were illegitimate, they were not the rightful heirs to the throne. So he declared himself king and the two boys were never seen again. The fact that until the moment when he took the throne from his nephew Edward, nobody had really thought that he had any designs on being king is interesting. And it was one of the reasons why he was able to to get away with it, because when he did reveal his outrageous and audacious plan, he acted extremely quickly, so nobody had a chance to do anything. It's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? Oh, my God, I didn't see that one coming. That's extraordinary that they didn't see it coming. And, you know, maybe, as I say, maybe it was only at this point where he thought, hang about, maybe I should just become king. Maybe he thought that as long as Edward was on the throne as a boy king, there would be discontent, there would be insecurity, that these uh, the wars of the roses might might rekindle and drag on. Maybe he genuinely thought it would be better for England if he was in charge 
and he basically drew a line under Edward's family. One version of these events claimed that Richard originally had planned to declare that his brother Edward himself had been illegitimate, but he decided quite wisely not to pursue that line in case he got caught up in all these sort of claims of legitimacy and illegitimacy. And he came up with this alternative idea where he got a priest, Robert Stillington, to claim that he had indeed been involved in making a pre-contract for brother Edward to marry this woman, Dame Eleanor Butler, but that Elizabeth Woodville and her mother had used witchcraft to beguile Edward and dump Eleanor. So there he is, Richard III is on the throne. And despite his very thorough and decisive actions, removing all of the supporters of Edward IV, he was not fully safe on the throne and was by no means unopposed. He wasn't able to arrest or wipe out all of Elizabeth Woodville's family or the Beaufort branch of the family, who fairly quickly launched a rebellion, which ended up being uh, organised by the Duke of Buckingham. And originally, the rebels announced that they were trying to put the rightful heir back on the throne, Edward V. But at this point, it must have become clear that Edward V was dead. Now, no body was produced, and it was never officially announced that he was dead. He just wasn't there anymore. So at this point, we have to assume, as everybody at the time did, that Edward V was dead. And the rebels switched their alliance to another claimant to the throne, Henry Tudor. And the Tudor family have been allied by marriage to the Beaufort branch. But we'll look at all that and how the Tudors fit into this story in the next episode. So we'll stick with Richard. Soon after his coronation, Richard had set off on a progress around the country which ended with him uh, entering York in triumph um, at the end of August. But in July, news reached him that there had been an attempt to rescue the two princes from the Tower of London. The attempt had failed, but this was what probably led to the prince's death. It was too risky for Richard to leave them there and to leave them alive. And certainly everybody at the time now thought, OK, that's it. The princes are dead. But Buckingham's rebellion, this first attempt to, to put Henry Tudor on the throne, failed. Henry had been exiled in France, and when he tried to get over to England, there were storms. And yet again, um, a great undertaking was thwarted by bad weather in the Channel. And Buckingham's own ships were also caught up in the same storm. And soon after that, his army deserted him when uh, King Richard III's army confronted them. Buckingham was captured and beheaded. So this rebellion came to nothing. But Richard now made the mistake that many previous monarchs had made. He started trying to install favourites into positions of power. He needed to bolster his regime. He needed to get rid of any support for um, his brother Edward and therefore his nephew Edward V. Um, he felt that his hold on the throne was shaky, which it was. So particularly in the north, he started putting in his new men into positions of power, which didn't go down well with the old guard 
and with the ordinary people. So there was a lot of dissent and, and, there, and there was a lot of support for Henry Tudor. But Henry Tudor hadn't given up. Two years after his first thwarted invasion, he tried again, this time with the full backing of the French who supplied him with funds and troops. Um, any opportunity to have a go at, at the English king, the French were up for. And Henry successfully invaded across the Channel and marched north to where Richard's stronghold was in the north. And the two armies met at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Now, Henry's forces were considerably outnumbered, probably by about 8,000 to 5,000. So 8,000 on Richard's side and 5,000 on Henry's side. So it should have been a foregone conclusion. But I think I used the analogy in a previous episode of playing risk. Anybody who's had the awful frustration of, of trying to launch a big battle in, in risk will know uh, what I'm talking about, where it looks like you have unbeatable odds on your side and within a few throws of the dice, you've been completely wiped out. And this is what happened to the unfortunate Richard. And a big part in this change of fortunes was down to the actions of three men. One of the Percys, Henry Percy, and two brothers of the Stanley family, Lord William Stanley and Thomas Stanley. Now, they were both big players at the royal court, hangovers from Edward's time, too popular and too powerful for Richard to just get rid of. He was hoping they would support him against Henry, but didn't fully trust them. He'd taken William's son, George Lord Strange, as a hostage to make sure that Stanley kept on side. At first, the two brothers didn't get directly involved in the battle. They hung back, waiting to see which way things would go. And things started well for Richard. He was, you know, he was a brave man. He was a good soldier and a good general, leading his army mounted on his great white charger. And now, in the heat of the battle, he decides to risk a big throw of the dice to try to end it all quickly and decisively. Another rattlesnake strike, and he leads a cavalry charge into Henry's ranks to try and get at Henry and kill him. He did pretty well. He cut his way through several famous knights. He killed King Henry's standard bearer, and he got actually got close enough to Henry to kill him himself. He was in sword's reach, as it were. But has he overreached? The Stanleys certainly think so. They finally make their move. They come in to support Henry, at which point Henry Percy, who led a substantial number of men, switched sides. Now, it's a big gamble for the Stanleys, because if Richard wins, they'll be executed, along with William's son, George. They obviously figured that actually Henry was more popular and if they supported Henry, he would win and they would then be on the winning side. So they made this tactical gamble and this swung the odds in Henry's favour. And Richard suddenly found himself surrounded by the Stanley's men and he was brutally cut down. And when the experts studied King Richard's body when it was disinterred in Leicester. They found that he was covered in wounds. He had 11 wounds, eight of which were to the skull, and he had clearly got them fighting in a battle. They weren't post-mortem. 
and it seems that he must have lost his helmet and he took several blows to the head from various different weapons. So he was attacked by all sides and hacked down and there was a, a massive sword cut that, that chopped off the back of his skull. So that was the end of Richard. At least he had a brave end, dying in battle. He didn't die from an exploding stomach or a red-hot poker up the arse or being starved to death in a castle somewhere. He died as a valiant young man leading an army into battle. As I say, he was the last of the Yorkists, the last of the Plantagenets, and he was the last English king to be killed in battle. And Henry VII came to the throne and started the Tudor dynasty, which we will pick up with in the next episode. After the battle, Richard's naked body was tied to the back of a horse and brought into Leicester. It was probably displayed in public for a while before being quickly buried in Greyfriars Church in Leicester. And Henry didn't want to make a big deal about this. He wanted it sort of kept quiet in some ways. He didn't want any sort of cult growing up around the dead Richard. But over the following hundreds of years, Greyfriars Church essentially disappeared. There had been fires, it had been burnt down, redeveloped, eventually pulled down in the Reformation and built over. But by 2012, a group of archaeologists based in Leicester had deduced where they thought the site of the church was and where they thought King Richard's grave might be. And they got permission to dig up this car park. And amazingly, in the first dig with this digger, they found this body in a coffin. It had mild scoliosis. It had these wounds, particularly to the skull, which were documented at the time of the battle. And through DNA testing, um, they managed to track down his closest possible surviving relative. I think the guy was a carpenter. They got a reasonably good DNA match. And so they announced this was King Richard III's body. And he was reburied with some ceremony and given a proper tomb and a proper memorial. So over those 400 years, his reputation has wavered. Certainly during the Tudor period, he was painted uh, in very dark colours because the Tudors needed to justify killing Richard and taking his throne. But then in later years, uh, people questioned this, saying, well, this obviously was propaganda. Richard was a better man than the Tudors would have us believe. And certainly, you know, before he came to the throne, he was a respected politician. He was quite respected in the north. He had helped Edward uh, to try and restore some kind of sense of order to the country. He had done quite a lot to improve the conditions of the ordinary people in the north by keeping peace and imposing strict law and order and a strong, clear judicial system. He opened up the sale of printed books, which had been greatly restricted. He tried to get the English laws and statutes all translated from the French into English. He was trying to democratise the government, make it more accessible to the ordinary English people. But despite all this, I have to say that I am not fully on the Ricardians' side the Ricardians being these modern-day supporters of Richard. I'm sorry if you are a Ricardian and you are listening to this hoping 
that I will say, actually, Richard was a really great bloke. People like to believe that they are cleverer than the experts, that they know more, that they have the proper inside knowledge, um, this secret and special knowledge. But to me, the sensible thing to do is to look at the facts and to look at the most likely and rational explanations for what happened. Is a recorded fact that the first thing that Richard did when he rode ostensibly to look after the young King Edward V was to arrest and execute his uncle Earl Rivers and various other members of his family. He then effectively locked Edward and his younger brother Richard up in the tower. Now, who is the person that most benefited from killing these two boys? It is Richard. He is there in Westminster. He is ready and poised to take the throne. The Ricardians claim that it was Henry VII himself who somehow managed to kill the boys or have the boys killed, even though Henry at this time is hiding out in France and is nowhere to be seen. There's a very famous portrait of Richard in the newly revamped National Portrait Gallery, which is well worth a visit. And the Ricardians look at this painting and they say, this is the face of a kind, intelligent and gentle man. Look at the way he's charmingly fiddling with his signet ring, which is actually something that King Charles III does. He's famous for fiddling with his ring. And other people will look at this very same portrait and say, this is clearly the face of a killer, an evil, wily, scheming man. Look at the way he's anxiously fiddling with his ring. You can read into that face whatever you want. But it's the face of our last Plantagenet king. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I have the perfect guest on today to talk about Richard III. It's Matt Lewis who is the chair of the Richard III Society. I am, for my and, many and, uh, Can you just talk us through, what is the Richard III Society? The Richard III Society is now in its 99th year, so next year we're celebrating our centenary, and it began in 1923 as something called the Fellowship of the White Boar, which was uh, essentially a group of people uh, led by a, a man named Dr Saxon Barton, who was a, a surgeon from Liverpool, who would just fascinated by Richard III and so they yeah. started getting together and having chats about it meeting at each other's houses and it, it sort of blossomed into this fellowship of the white boar uh, the group kind of went into abeyance a little bit during the second world war for 
probably fairly obvious reasons, re-emerged then as something called the Richard III Society and really has gone from strength to strength since then. You know, it, we do a great deal of academic research and we provide a forum for people who are just interested in Richard III, in the story of the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, it's really a, a group that's aimed at getting as close to the truth about Richard III as we can. So lots of people, I think, will see us as people who want to whitewash Richard's reputation. That's not necessarily what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to get closer <laughs> to the truth. <laughs> well, David Mitchell has just published his own history of the English monarchy called Unruly, and I had him on as a guest to talk about Edward V. And he asked who was coming on to talk about Richard. And I said, well, it's Matt Lewis, the chair of the Richard III Society. And he said, oh, well, you won't get an unbiased opinion from him. But, but, but I'm sure that as a historian, whilst you will have an opinion, it will be a considered one. I mean, essentially, you are dealing with the facts the same as any other historian. It's just how we look at them. Absolutely. I try to be as objective as I can. I never deny that I have a more positive view of Richard than most historians would probably subscribe to. But <laughs> I like to believe that it's always based on the evidence that we have. And one of the issues around Richard III is that we have such limited evidence that you can get so far and then you have to take a leap and it will be a leap in one direction or another, which will be based on your subjective view of Richard and the period and, and everything that's gone on around it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting you're talking about sifting through the evidence. In 1990, the Crime Writers Association voted Josephine Tay's novel Daughter of Time as the greatest crime novel ever written. And it's, and it's, it's interesting because it's about her police inspector, Alan Grant. And he's in hospital recovering and someone shows him the famous portrait of Richard III. And he looks at it and he thinks you know what, he looks like quite a nice guy, actually. I'm going to investigate this. And from his hospital bed, he does a complete sort of police detective investigation of Richard III and comes to the conclusion that he wasn't guilty. But, you know, it is fascinating that this will always remain an unsolved mystery. And the other fascinating thing is we posted a little clip of, of David Mitchell talking about um, Richard and it caused a Twitter spat not exactly a storm, but, you know, quite a lot of people saying, oh, come on, David, I thought you're an intelligent person. Surely you're not going to really believe that Richard III was guilty. It, it's fascinating that something that happened 500 years ago, people are, are still arguing about and are still passionate about. Richard ruled for just over two years, more than 500 years ago, yet people are still passionately interested in that period mm. today. And there are these little pockets of history that I think if you move through it and you aren't aware of them, they're like little landmines that can go off under your feet, aren't they? You you, you stray into yes. a, an area, you mention something, and all of a sudden it explodes and you, your leg is flying across the room and you're not quite sure what happened. <laughs> and you've just wandered into one of these history minefields and taken a wrong step and said something that someone really, really objects to. Well, the great thing about these unsolved mysteries of sort of areas where we don't have all the facts is it means people can impose whatever meaning they want onto it and bring their own facts and prejudice to, to it, um, which I guess is why people then get quite passionate about it. It is. And then you fall back because you're lacking history, historical evidence to back up any argument further than a certain point you are falling back on your own subjective views and life experiences and what you think people are capable of and how you believe people might yes. act in certain situations 
and and that would be different for almost every person you know you and i will have a completely different view on how someone might react in a given situation like a lot of people in the country i was absolutely hooked by the traitors the, the reality tv show where three people were randomly assigned to be the bad guys and what was so fascinating about that is nobody had a clue how to read anybody else and it was all like well she's a really nice person so she couldn't possibly have done this and you know they didn't take on board the fact that they were randomly allocated it weren't that they were evil from birth but you know it, there was an ex-policewoman there who said well I'm an ex-policewoman so I'm used to this kind of thing and you think well We've seen time and time again the police jumping to the wrong conclusions about things. So, yes, our idea that we know anyone is self-delusional. And the fact that we think perhaps we can know about Richard III based on the fact that someone looks at the picture and thinks he looks like a nice bloke, someone else can look at that picture and think, oh, he looks like quite an evil bastard. Yeah, absolutely. But you've gone way beyond any kind of knee-jerk reaction. You've written extensively about the Middle Ages and the Wars of the Roses and you're obviously someone who's passionate about history and passionate about getting it out there. And, well, I mean, it's not teaching people. It's, it's sharing that love and that interest. And you've written a lot about Richard, most recently in 2018 with Richard III, Loyalty Binds Me. Yeah, that's my like um, cradle but, to the grave biography of Richard. So right. it's, it's a bit of a doorstep of a book, I'm afraid. But Well, no, don't apologise. People like big books. But if you don't like big books, get hold of Matt's Medieval Britain in 100 Facts, a great little book with a fun fact on every page. Now, Matt, as well as writing these books, you are also the senior presenter on History Hit, which is, well, I guess you could describe it as, as an online history channel. We try and put out an original history documentary that we've made every single week on Blimey. some period of, of history. Alongside that, there are a suite of podcasts as well. So I co-host the Gone Medieval podcast, which covers all things medieval uh, in what mm -hmm. I describe as the, the greatest millennium in human history so far, as well as you know, our flagship Dan Snow's History Hit a daily podcast mm. with, with all kinds of fascinating stuff from across history. And we are about to publish our first book too. So the History Hit Miscellany will be out at the end of September, just in time to be the ideal Christmas present, uh, packed with mm -hmm. interesting snippets and facts and figures from across history, which people, I hope, will find very enjoyable and informative and entertaining. Excellent. So to get back to Richard, are there any other British monarchs who have their own society? Is there this kind of interest in anyone else? I don't, I don't think there is at all. I think there is a an element of interest in Charles I, potentially, um, but nothing like the Richard III society around that. I guess the closest you might get to it is the kind of Jack the Ripper community that, that are fascinated by the Ripper murders. But then he wasn't a monarch, or was he? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one of your core aims is to is to reevaluate the entrenched idea that Richard was Dick the Bad and he was actually the victim of Tudor propaganda. So obviously Richard is killed in 1485. The Tudors come to the throne. And at that point, I think Henry VII has to position himself as the hero. He can't just say, mm -hmm. you know what, I've invaded the country and killed the king, who was actually quite a good guy. Richard III has to become a villain so that Henry VII can be the hero. And it's interesting that the Tudor era ends with the death of Elizabeth I right at the beginning of the 17th century. 
1617, you've got a man named Sir George Buck who is putting together what is essentially the, the first defence of Richard III. And he pulls together all of these manuscript sources, lots of which have been lost to us since, so we can't actually even see these manuscripts mm. now. They've been lost in fires and all kinds of things. And so he pulls all of this together and concludes, he concludes, similar to Alan Grant in the novel, you know, that Richard III wasn't actually that bad a guy and he probably didn't murder his nephews. And he's seen evidence that we don't have the chance to examine today. Mm. And then you get people like Horace Walpole, you know, writing his historic doubts about Richard III. And Jane Austen, in her History of the Kings of England, says that she's inclined to think that Richard III was actually quite a nice man. So there has always been this idea that Richard was somehow given this dreadful reputation to balance Mm. out the fact that the Tudors needed a reason to have come you know the the only reason that henry the yes. seventh could have to invade the country was that richard was a terrible guy who needed to be removed and i think that the movement around ricardianism i guess is a a reaction to that and maybe there's something in in us wanting to rehabilitate someone who is, is something of an underdog you know this guy has had his reputation yeah. trashed in the press and he's not here to answer for himself so so perhaps we want to look at that reputation and think does it actually stack up against the facts I mean, David Mitchell made an interesting point. Where he's saying, OK, he was obviously a nicer guy than he was painted by the Tudors and that traditionally he was thought of. And you say, OK, maybe he was a nice guy. Maybe he was a good king. Maybe he was sorting things out. But that doesn't mean that he didn't then think, actually, to keep things stable, to keep things safe, the best thing to do is to get the princes out of the way. So, you know, it, it's like saying... It's all or nothing. Oh, he's a nice guy and therefore he didn't do any of these bad things. I mean, I, I know David Mitchell mentioned the idea of Occam's razor, you know, the, the simplest explanation will normally be the right one. And I always feel a bit like Occam's razor is, in historical terms, incredibly lazy. It's basically saying I can't be bothered to It was actually me this. who said Occam's razor. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I think that's a bit of a cop-out. Because, you know, it's like Agatha Christie writing a, a mystery novel and having Poirot walk into the room and go, nah, it was probably you, the end. There is so much yeah, more... but that's what he does, really. He <laughs> takes Occam's razor to it and he removes all the stuff. You couldn't have done it because of this, yeah, couldn't have done that. Therefore, we're left with the obvious choice, which is you. To a certain extent, Poirot is using Occam's razor. But we don't have the evidence to do what Poirot does in this case because we can't say no. it wasn't you and this didn't happen because we simply don't have the evidence. So people then use Occam's razor to essentially leap to a, a conclusion that isn't backed up by the evidence, which I don't think is what Poirot does. Um, <laughs> but I would argue that there are there are many ways to look at what happened. And I never, ever deny the possibility that Richard III murdered his nephews because I don't know that he mm-hmm. didn't do it. I simply believe that there are plenty of other options that fit better with him. So when Richard becomes king in 1483, he's a 30-year-old man, and we know a lot about him. We know what he's been doing for the past dozen or so years of his political Mm. life. We know what he's interested in. We know the ways that he behaves. And that man, that monster in 1483, who, you know, comes out of his coronation and is kind of, today I are mostly murdering children. (laughs) <laughs> and just decides that, you know, there's no other way out of this but to kill some kids. That man just doesn't exist anywhere before 1483. And one of the important but he's already, things... he's already killed uh, Earl Rivers and John Grey. Executed. I mean, they're, they're judicial executions. Yeah. And yeah, if, but... if Richard III comes to the throne with the judicial executions of Rivers, Grey and Hastings, 
how does that compare to the way that many other kings have come to the throne? You think about his brother Edward IV comes to the throne, wading through blood at places like Battle of Towton, where thousands yeah. of people have died. Is three people really so bad? I'd, I'd guess if you were members of their family, you'd be a bit upset. But three politically active men who are who are accused of things is different to two small children who are his nephews who have never done anything in their own right. And to some extent... Yeah, but I, if they're kept alive, then he knows that he's never going to be secure on the throne. Yeah, and I can argue against my own case in this point because the issue with the boys really uh, is what they represent. It's not what they've done or who they are. Exactly. It's what they represent in terms of a threat to Richard. I, I would never buy the, the idea that because they're declared illegitimate, they're no longer a threat and Richard doesn't have to worry about them. They absolutely are a threat. But there are examples of how you can deal with it. So the perfect example, in 1399, when Richard II is deposed from the throne and Henry IV is faced with a situation where he's got two small children who most people believe have a better claim to the throne than he does and who will mm. be a threat to him. But he doesn't kill them. What he does is takes them into initially fairly loose custody they're abducted with the idea of putting Edmund on the throne. They're quickly recovered and then they're hidden much more secretly. And they emerge in 1413 when Henry V becomes king and they are utterly loyal to the House of Lancaster for the rest of their lives. So something about the way that they're brought up has meant that they haven't actually rebelled. And that was Henry IV dealing with two little boys who weren't close relatives of his. So I find it difficult to believe that Richard wouldn't have thought in 1483... I've got an option here that I can try. Maybe it won't work, but surely it's got to be preferable to murdering the the two small sons of my brother who I loved and who I have been loyal to for his entire life. Wouldn't yeah, he wanted it, to try that option? It, but, it, but he was also originally planning to get his brother declared illegitimate. What? I, I don't buy that at all. So that, that story comes oh, from... Oh, you don't buy... Okay. No, so the, the sermons in 1483 were about the illegitimacy of Edward IV's children because he, he'd married bigamously. Yes. There is one source from an Italian who spoke no English who talks about Richard trying to say that Edward IV was illegitimate. And the, the key point about him, it's Mancini, the key point about him is that he reports back to the French court and at the French court, the illegitimacy of Edward IV was a running joke. It was Louis XI's favourite joke that he used to make people tell him all the time. Right. So I think he <laughs> conflates the story. He hears there's something about illegitimacy going on, and so he plays to this French audience who will know the story of Edward IV's illegitimacy. But he's the only one that says it's about that. Everyone else says it's about the bigamy of Edward IV's marriage. Now, it's almost impossible to have a discussion about Richard III that doesn't within about 30 seconds, come back to the princes in the tower. Uh, and that mystery and his death at Bosworth Field are pretty much all that's discussed about his reign. But he did do other stuff. I mean, can we just talk about that? I mean, I guess he did most of his sort of ruling up in the north before he was king because he was on the throne for such a short time. But how good a ruler was he from that time before he came to the throne and after? Yeah, so essentially from about 1471 onwards, he rules in the north of England for his brother Edward IV. Mm. So he's based at Midland Castle and York at this point is still, you know, probably the second city in the kingdom. And he has really close ties and connections to York. The north has always been somewhere that's been beyond the reach of kings, really. And so for Edward IV, it's a real boon to have this loyal brother up there doing a great job of of ruling that part of the country on his behalf. 
And Richard builds networks of connections and an affinity that is is utterly loyal to him. People generally mm. love him up there, obviously not universally. There are people in York who complain that Richard sticks his nose into city business that he ought to keep out of. But that's that's the way the world is, isn't it? Nobody is loved by everybody. So, I mean, is this a sort of equivalent of, of levelling up? It's like, please pay attention to what we're doing up here. We're important. And so an important person is sent up and it's like, oh, great, someone's going to listen to us. Yeah, now. and for the region, having the king's brother there is a real boon. So they have issues. Mm. This this sounds really obscure and, and weird. They have an issue with something called fish garths, which are essentially industrial fishing weirs across rivers. And so you have to mm. have you have to own land and you have to be wealthy enough to build one of these weirs. So they're owned and operated by the the church and the gentry and the nobility. But what they effect- effectively do is hugely reduce the catch downriver for other people who want to fish. And they also yeah. hamper navigation of rivers at a time when the rivers are the the medieval motorway network. You know, this is how people get yeah. about. And so the North complain to Richard and, and are in a position where he can go to his brother and say, can we ban fish garths? And Edward says, yeah, go on then, ban fish garths. And the North have been trying to deal with this for, for decades. Well, they're, I mean, they're mentioned in the Magna Carta, aren't they? I remember talking to Nicholas Vincent about that. And jokely, I said, well, you know, the Magna Carta is supposed to be this great political document. And there's a load of daft stuff in there about fishing rights and removing fish traps on rivers. And he said, no, 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 no. That's absolutely, that's that's a really big, important thing. This is like 400 years later. This is obviously the problem wasn't solved. That's it. So centuries later, Richard is actually delivering. So he bans fifth fish right. garths. And what he does is he comes back and he writes to all of the tenants and, and managers of his own lands and tells them to remove all the fish garths first so that mm. then he can go to everyone else and say, look, I've done this. Now I expect you to do it. So there is no element of what we quite often see with medieval noblemen, of him being very much do as I say and not as I do, he's leading by example. And the issue is, one of the important things I think about Richard during this period and as king is when he does something like this, who is he benefiting? The common man, the normal man, the man who wants to get about on the river and he wants to catch some Mm. fish to feed his family with. Who is he hurting? Rich landowners who have been making a lot of money off those fish garths and are now being told they can't Mm. do that anymore. How do you build and maintain power in medieval England? You don't do it by making yourself popular with the common man because they simply don't have the power to keep you where you are. You do it by cultivating the nobility and the gentry and the kind of shire knights. They're the people who will keep you in office. And he seems to have this genuine interest in the lot of the common man, which continues into his time as king. And, And his parliament that sits in 1484 is something that is frequently overlooked uh, or considered unimportant. But it does some things that people, if they think about it, people say that his parliament was a bid for popularity and a desperate effort to keep himself on the throne. But what he does in parliament is very similar to what he does in the North. So he reforms bail law. Some people still say that Richard III invented bail. He definitely didn't. Bail existed before then. But he reforms bail law so that previously you could be arrested, all of your goods could be seized as, at the point that you're accused, and if you're found innocent and released, there was no obligation to give you those goods back. And that could be the tools right. of your trade, how you feed your family and everything. So Richard changes the law to say that you, you can't have your goods seized until you're found guilty. Uh, he 
changes jury composition laws to to do away with a lot of the corruption and bribery that goes on in mm. juries. And like the fish gas, my question here is who's benefiting? The people benefiting are those at the bottom of the social ladder. He introduces the first version of legal aid that we have in this country, the Court of Common Pleas, which allows mm. people who can't afford legal representation to have their cases heard. Who is he benefiting? He's benefiting the, the very lowest rungs of the political social ladders. But they're not mm. the people who can keep you on your throne as king. They absolutely cannot. In order to give them rights, he has to take them away from people further up the social ladder, the gentry and the nobility, who are the people that can keep you on your throne. So when we're looking at why people turn against Richard and decide they might not want him to be their king anymore, I think it's important to look at the rights that he is taking away from some people to be able to give them to okay. other people. So he was doing good things and, and, and helping the ordinary people of England, but we'll never know if he would have gone on to be a great king, will we? A great ruler, because his reign was cut so short. There is always an argument to be made for any king that lives, rules for more than a couple of decades will end up being a bad king. They just live long enough to yeah. fail. Yeah. So Richard, yes. a lot like Henry V, you can make the argument that their reign being cut short actually helped to make their reputation because they simply didn't have long enough to fail. I think you can make a case for Richard potentially being a good king. The ultimate thing that we have to allow is that Richard is a terrible failed king. He he dies, he loses his throne without an heir. He ends the Plantagenet dynasty, you know, after 331 mm. years. And so he hasn't brought the country with him. And I think a lot of the reforms that he tries to make, he tries to make too hard and too fast and he alienates too much of society and he's clumsy and naive in the ways that he does that so there are definitely huge issues with Richard as a king I, I hesitate to make the comparison but when you think about people like Jeremy Corbyn and the way they wanted to radically alter politics and then they get mm. rounded on by certain elements of the establishment it's it's not dissimilar to that yes and and the same thing I guess you could say happened with Liz Truss she tried to be too radical too quickly and um she had her own Battle of Bosworth Field. <laughs> <laughs> With a lettuce. So the first sort of big uprising against him is what became known as Buckingham's Rebellion. And I've slightly skirted around Buckingham because it's another complication. Because w what sort of family faction does Buckingham represent? I've been trying not to call people things like Buckingham and Coventry and Ipswich or whatever. Um, and use their actual names because I think people find it really confusing. You know, you've got so many bloody... Warwick's, for instance, down the centuries. I've just said, oh, well, Buckingham had this rebellion. But what, what family was he from? So he is Henry Stafford. He's from the Stafford family who have been Earls of Stafford in previous generations and have become Dukes of Buckingham. The Buckingham Rebellion was often viewed, for years it was viewed as an effort to put Henry Tudor on the throne, that this was the first bid mm. that Henry made to become king. But I think that was about Buckingham trying to take the throne for himself. So Buckingham has okay. a perfectly good claim to the throne of England. He's descended three times over from Edward III. He has a better Beaufort claim than Henry Tudor does. And so I think the October Rebellion is about Buckingham trying to win the throne for himself. I think Henry Tudor is, is involved in it as a supporter of it and with the plan that he will come back to England and be able to be Earl of Richmond. The problem with Buckingham is that we know so little about him. My mm. issue with him then is that <clears throat> makes him the unpredictable, unknown element in 1483. Richard is not the unknown, unpredictable element. It's Buckingham. So if someone is mm. doing something 
utterly radical and unheard of, like murdering children, Buckingham, for me, is a stronger candidate to have behaved in that manner than Richard is. Right. Now, I think it's time, Matt, to round up the usual suspects. Who killed the princes in the tower? You're putting Buckingham into the lineup, and recently Lady Margaret has become a suspect, plotting to get her son Henry onto the throne. So is she implicated in this uprising, this this rebellion? Yes, absolutely. She is yeah. um, tried for treason in Parliament in 1484. For but is she but is she supporting Stafford or ultimately her son Henry? So my my take on Margaret Beaufort is that what she really wants is is Henry home. She wants her son Henry Tudor to come home. He's been in exile for right. 13, 14 years by the time he comes yeah. over at Bosworth. She's made this agreement just before Edward IV dies. She gets this agreement from him that Henry Tudor can come home and potentially marry one of Edward's daughters. Edward mm. dies before he signs that document. We know that Margaret Beaufort meets with Richard the day before his coronation to discuss some Beaufort debts and some financial stuff. We don't have evidence of it, but I find it hard to believe that Margaret wouldn't have said to Richard, are you going to honour your brother's agreement that my son can come home? And I think yeah. Richard probably has to say no at this point. We have all kinds of issues going on, a, a succession crisis. Now is not the time to be bringing home exiled, attainted rebels. I think at this point, Margaret has had enough of waiting. This is where her patience snaps. So I think she she and, and Bishop Morton, the, the future Archbishop of Canterbury, kind of egg Buckingham on to rebel. And I think part of... Margaret's arrangement for that. She financially backs this uprising. She politically backs it. She gets her son involved in it. And I think her arrangement with Buckingham will surely be, you can be king, my son can come home and be Earl of Richmond. Because it's when mm. Buckingham's rebellion collapses and fails, Buckingham is caught and he's executed. And it's a few days after that, we get the first ever reference of Henry VII as a contender for the throne. So it's almost like yeah. Buckingham has to be removed for that to happen. So I think Margaret is absolutely up to her neck in conspiracies against Richard for reasons that I think she would consider utterly legitimate. She's just had enough. OK, so I'm not sure if that means that Margaret was a suspect or not. So, so let's maybe try and wrap this up. I think it's time for you to share your theory of what happened to the princes in the Tower. And there's a clue in the title of the book you published before your biography of Richard, which is called The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, Murder, Mystery and Myth. And um, you've got the word survival in the title there. Kind of gives so, it away, so, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I, um, so talk us, talk us through your, your theory. I used to introduced talking about this book by saying that it was about the ideas that the princes didn't die at all and then someone pointed out they probably are dead by now so it's not a book about <laughs> zombie princes you know haunting london streets today this was really an that effort. would be a good book though there is a good book in that actually yeah um <laughs> this is a book about all of the the ideas that i'd come across that get mentioned in little snippets and sentences that they weren't murdered in 1483 by anybody and that they could have survived right. So undoubtedly, the, the prevailing theory is that Richard III killed his nephews. And I will never say that that didn't happen. I don't know. It's entirely yeah. possible. It would have been out of character. But people in stressful situations behave out of character. He could have done it. 
Buckingham could have killed the princes in the tower. Margaret Beaufort being involved is is quite a modern phenomenon, probably born out of particularly Philippa Gregory's writing around the White Queen and the White Princess and right. things like that. Right. So we get that source that I mentioned from the early 17th century, Sir George Buck. He says that he saw a document that says Margaret Beaufort poisoned the princes in the tower. But then it goes quiet for kind of almost 400 oh. years until Philippa Gregory creates the idea that Margaret Beaufort might have been behind it. So there's no real evidence of Margaret being involved. I think the most likely suspects, if they were murdered in 1483, are Richard III and the Duke of Buckingham. You know, Richard III is king. He's controlling the tower. He's got his people there. I mean, it's quite hard for one of these other people to somehow get people in there to kill the princes, hide the bodies and get out again without anyone noticing. Absolutely. But people also forget that the, the Tower of London isn't just a jail at this point. It's a, a working royal palace. There are hundreds of people yeah. in and out of there all day. It's a menagerie. It's a mint. It's an armory. It's a, a palace mm. as well as being a prison. Although, I mean, as far as I know, nobody else from outside ever managed to secretly assassinate anyone being held there. I mean, my, so my theory, if I'm pushed, the book is an exploration of several different ideas, but my version <laughs> of this, I don't think Richard III ever planned to kill his nephews. I don't think they were ever in any danger right. from him. I think he might have known that they could be a threat in the future, but if they come back as 18-year-old men and face him on the battlefield, he can deal with that and justify their deaths yeah. at that point. I think he separates them. So these boys have been brought up completely separately. They, they barely knew each other. So contrary to all that Victorian mm. portraiture of them clinging onto each other, just waiting <laughs> to be murdered, they barely knew each other. So I think Richard would have sent Edward V up to the Council of the North. So to the, the place that Richard has been for a dozen years, to castles that are, are filled with men who are utterly loyal to him, where he can rely on them being kept secret. So that part of that Henry IV plan that we talked about before, the bit that didn't work was when everyone knew where they were and they could be targets for mm. abduction. So if you wanted yeah. to refine that plan, you remove that part and you go straight to the bit where no one knows where they're being kept and they can't be targeted. So he's following the Henry IV playbook. Then. I think so, but refining... The, the process slightly to remove the yeah. risky bit of that. So Edward's gone to the north. Where's Richard? I think from? Richard could have gone over to Richard III's sister, Margaret, who is the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy at this point. We have a couple <laughs> of accounts of money, almost a year's worth of exchequer revenue, being sent over to the continent with Sir James Tyrrell. And we don't know where that goes or what purpose it was to serve. It's possible that it has something to do with military problems in Brittany, but it's equally possible that that was a payment to Margaret for the care of at least one of the princes in the tower right. to provide for their care. And, and is, is Tyrrell the guy who is often accused of smothering them? Yeah, so pillow? Tyrrell is the man that Thomas right. More says is behind the murder yeah. of the princes in the tower, which is built upon by Shakespeare. Uh, and I think most successful lies are built around a kernel of truth. So if James Tyrrell was involved in the continued existence of the princes in the tower and he, he was around ooh, them, ooh, it's great to build a, okay. a lie around that, that he was then involved <laughs> in their deaths. Okay, so Richard Richard goes to Burgundy and then what happens? So I think Does he then, ever come back into history? When Richard loses the Battle of Bosworth, when Richard III loses the Battle of Bosworth, we get a mad dash to Yorkshire 
So Henry VII sends men straight up to York. That's definitely about recovering the Earl of Warwick, who is another Yorkist threat. And it's definitely about recovering Elizabeth of York, who he's going to marry. But I wonder whether there were rumours that Edward V might have been there too. Excuse me. Okay. If that was the case, and I'm always going to say if before all of this, because I can't prove what I'm saying. This is my theory. It's a good story. If, If Edward was there the natural place for him to go is to shoot across west to Ireland, which is a Yorkist stronghold. Ireland has always loved the House of York. And then we get this emergence of a plot in 1487, which is remembered in history as the Lambert Simnel Affair. And history tells us that that's... Are you going to tell me that that could be Edward? Yeah, that's what I'm going to tell you. Okay. So history tells us that that's a plot in favour of the Earl of Warwick, who was a prisoner in the Tower of London. So it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. That How could it possibly hope to succeed? What history tells us is that a 10-year-old boy pretended to be the 12-year-old Earl of Warwick, who was a prisoner in London in the Tower at the time. Mm. And Henry was able to make a joke of this by wheeling Warwick out and, and showing him to yes. everybody. There are things about that Lambert Simnel affair that don't make sense to me, that make sense if you just allow for a moment that it could have been an uprising in favour of Edward V. So they invade and we get the Battle of Stoke in June 1487. When that happened, Edward V, if he's still alive, would have been 16 and a half years old. That's exactly the same age as the Black Prince is at Cressy. It's exactly the same age as Henry V yeah. is at the Battle of Shrewsbury. It's a few, only a few months younger than his father was when he started his glittering military career in the Wars of the Roses. So if you're going to follow someone into battle, is it going to be a 10-year-old who's pretending to be a 12-year-old? Would you follow a 12-year-old? Probably not. Would you follow the 16-and-a-half-year-old son of the greatest warrior king in living memory? Well, you just might do that when he's he's emulating the Black Prince and Henry V. So I think the Lambert Simnel affair could have been an uprising in favour of Edward V, not the Earl of Warwick. I think maybe that was smoke and mirrors. OK, interesting. But, I mean, but, but my take on all this is that Simnel was just a puppet, a stooge. And the real leader of the uprising was John de la Pole. King Richard's nephew, with the backing of, once again, Margaret of York over in Burgundy. And Simnel was just a kind of useful banner to march behind. I mean, for your version to work, Matt, Simnel would have had to have been, what, 15? Not not the 10-year-old boy we know from history. So, so the boy that history that remembers as Lambert Simnel that then goes into the kitchens wasn't the boy that was yeah. leading that rebellion. I believe. Okay. He's just a, a patsy picked up off the battlefield and you know, offered a cushy life in the royal kitchens if he'll pretend to be who he says he was. And and so following on from that, are you saying that Perkin Warbeck is is Richard, Edward's brother? Yes, I believe Edward's that. Brother. I, I Again, I can't prove it, but I think there is so much evidence that points to the idea that he could have been genuine. The people that believed in him, the people that were willing to die... And if nothing else, I think it's striking how many people are willing to to risk their lives by the 1490s in the absolute belief that at least the princes could still be alive. We're often told that they were dead, Richard had killed them and everybody knew it. But in 1495, William Stanley, so the man that led the charge at Bosworth that killed Richard, he's executed in 1495 for his part in Warbeck's uprisings. Yeah. So he goes, literally puts his neck on the block and loses his head in the belief that at least one of Edward IV's sons could well still be alive in 1495. So if he believed that and he died in that belief, how can we be so sure now that they were dead by 1483? Well, I mean, that, you know, that it, it, 
that is really interesting and, and you know it, it just proves how fascinating this whole thing is and stories that come out of it and ways that you can look at it are you know i wish we could talk about this for another hour but i think our our listeners would probably start looking for a shorter podcast to listen to thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me charlie it's been a pleasure i I, i'm very happy to talk about the princess in the town richard for as many hours as people will listen so thank you for having me And just remind us what you've got coming up. Yeah, you can tune into Gone Medieval podcast every Tuesday and Friday, obviously in between listening to Charlie's. uh, And the history hit miscellany will be on the shelves (laughs) on the 28th of September. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. So that was Matt Lewis, chair of the Richard III Society and the author of an excellent biography of Richard. And I'll leave it to you listeners to make your own minds up as to what happened to the princes in the tower. My next episode is going to be another supplementary episode. Rather than jumping straight in on Henry VII, I'm going to backtrack a little and look at the early history of the Tudors with Tracy Borman, where they came from, when they entered history, and how they got involved in the unholy mess of the Wars of the Roses. It's a great and often unlikely story about how this actually pretty insignificant family, ended up booting out the mighty Plantagenets and taking over the throne of England. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.